Chapter Nine of the Sacred Herb by Fergus Hume. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Doctor Horace. Next day, everyone, from the man in the street to the lady in her drawing room, was talking about the murder at Alexander Mansions. As a rule, those in society talk very little about such horrors. But on this occasion, people, more or less fashionable, felt that the crime had been committed, so to speak, on their very doorsteps. Mrs. Rover's ball had been broken up by the discovery of the crime, and many of the guests, crowding down to Shepworth's flat, had seen a murdered man for the first time in their frivolous lives. No wonder the tragedy made a sensation. Moreover, the second crime in London was connected. No one exactly knew how, with the first crime at Lanwyn Grange, Hyde. Sir Oliver had been murdered by his niece, who was now being tried for the offense. The victim had been a baronet, and the prisoner was a well-known figure in the social world. Now the missing witness, upon whose evidence was supposed to hinge the condemnation or acquittal of Miss Chent, had been violently done away with, and hinted gossip in spite of appearances the barrister to whom the flat belonged must have killed the man so that damaging evidence might be finally suppressed thus the two crimes had much to do with society as a whole and the newspaper placards informed the lower orders of a tragedy in high life stump orators in hyde park chose the placards and the moment to talk of the decay of the upper classes and of the need of a revolution to sweep away tyrants born in the social purple finally there was another thing which interested fashionable folk many guests at the masked ball had been robbed of valuable jewelry and the police were entirely at a loss to trace the thieves undoubtedly what mr simon haken had prophesied jokingly to his host had come cruelly true swell mobsmen and light-fingered ladies had taken advantage of the use of masks at the ball to mingle with the illegitimate guests and appropriate gems and gold of great value bracelets earrings chains brooches and even rings many of these had vanished and scarcely a single woman had escaped the rapacity of the unknown thieves. This in itself was sufficient to make Mrs. Dolly Rover's entertainment notorious, and that a terrible murder should cap the climax of such roguery was almost too much for belief. Next day the journals sold like hotcakes, and the one topic of conversation with high and low had to do with this astounding criminality lord prelice returned to his rooms in half moon street just as the dawn broke over an astonished and indignant mayfair and threw himself on his bed to recuperate tough as he was with travel and adventure he needed sleep very badly after the exciting events of the dark hours and as he dropped off into slumber it struck him forcibly that the time of superabundant leisure had gone by forever formerly an idler who took comparatively little interest in life and certainly none in the doings of other people he found himself committed through friendship to a strenuous career 
Ever since Lady Sophia's visit on the previous morning, he had gradually become entangled in other lives, and until the crooked ways of these had been made straight, he saw no chance of reverting to his happy-go-lucky existence. Prelice, having a high ideal of friendship, resolved to help Shepworth, and through him, Miss Mona Chint, with all the brain power and physical power and social power at his command and the opportunity of doing so was not unpleasing to an active-minded man, who had hitherto fritted away his intelligence in butterfly pursuits. He woke at noon to receive a telegram, which his man brought in, with an apology for disturbing him. It proved to be from Shepworth, and contained the amazing news that the barrister had been arrested for the murder. Considering that Inspector Burge had assured Shepworth, and in Prelice's presence, that there was no chance of any suspicion being cast upon him in any way, the young man had to read the wire twice or thrice before he could fully grasp its sinister significance. It seemed absurd. Dozens of people, including Burge and two medical men, had seen the insensible form of the accused man, and were content at the time that he could not raise a hand, much less execute a crime which needed clear-headedness and strength. And it was the more ridiculous to arrest Shepworth because the barrister had given a plain account of what had happened, so far as he remembered, which was similar in most respects to what had taken place at Hyde. Of course, Prelice recollected the way in which he and Ned had concealed the true story of the knife, but it was impossible that Shepworth, now quite in possession of his wits, should have told an unnecessary truth. If he had, Prelice believed that he would be arrested also, as an accessory after the fact. The thought made him uncomfortable, until he brushed it away. Ned was not exactly an idiot and on whatever plea he had been arrested, it certainly could not have been to do with the story of the knife. But it was necessary to learn what had taken place, and also to bail Ned out, so that they might work together to elucidate the mystery. This would be difficult, considering the charge was one of murder, but Prelice indulged in a cold bath to freshen his physical powers, and after dressing rapidly, took a hansom back to Alexander Mansions. Here he was confronted at the door by the same burly police constable who had prevented Shepworth's servants from re-entering their master's flat some hours before. He treated Lord Prelice in the same way. "'You can't come in, my lord. Inspector's orders.' "'I wish to see Mr. Shepworth,' argued Prelice vexedly. "'It's against orders, my lord.' "'Is he within?' "'Yes, my lord, but he isn't allowed to see anyone. "'Will you take a note in for me?' "'No, my lord, I can't do that. "'Can I see Inspector Burge?' "'He is at the police station, my lord.' Prelice stamped with vexation at the obstacles placed in his way. He did his best to argue his official machine into something resembling reasonable humanity, but without success. 
Shepworth, he learned, was to be taken to prison later in the day, and the constable hinted that, since the charge was so serious, there would be no chance of the barrister being let out on bail. There was no other course open but to see Inspector Burge, so Prelis drove to the Kensington police station, only to find that the man he wished to see had gone to Scotland Yard, presumably about the case. Apparently there was nothing to be done at the moment in connection with this new trouble, so Prelis was half-minded to repair to the new bailey and listen to the further progress of the charge against Miss Chint. Now that Agstone was dead, he did not think that she would be convicted. Also, the repetition of the circumstances of the Hyde crime in Alexander Mansions would assuredly strengthen her position, since the jury would now be compelled to believe her story of the stupefying smoke, which formerly had been regarded as absurd. And it was when the thought of the smoke entered his mind that Prelice recollected that Dr. Horace lived in the neighborhood. He therefore walked to Redland Square and asked at number 20 for his former fellow traveler. Chance stood the young man's friend, for the doctor was within and saw him at once. "'This is an unexpected pleasure, Prelice,' said the doctor, beaming. "'I thought you were in the West Indies.' "'I returned only a few days ago. Are you busy?' "'My friend, I am always busy.' and Horace indicated a case of beetles and butterflies with which he was dealing when his guest entered. The room was a large one, with two broad windows looking out onto the quiet square, but all available space was taken up with records of the doctor's travels. The floor was carpeted with wild beast skins, for Horace was a noted hunter. The walls were decorated with Polynesian war clubs, with Zulu ashagais, with redskin wampum belts and beaded moccasins. Also, there were Japanese gods, Chinese jars of grotesquely decorated porcelain, Hindu swords, Persian tiles reft from mosques, and African canoe paddles rudely carved. As Horace never allowed any servant to meddle with his treasures, the room was extremely untidy and dusty, and generally neglected with the exception of a gigantic dining-table of mahogany and two chairs there was no civilized furniture, yet the place was so crammed with barbaric curiosities that Prelice could scarcely find a clear place to stand in. Finally he stumbled through a narrow passage of Egyptian mummies and gigantic Mari idols to an uncomfortable cane chair near the window. Here he sat down and looked at his host with some disgust. "'Why the dickens can't you live like a civilized being when you're in London?' he asked, lighting a cigar to dispense the fronzy smell of the room. "'I am perfectly comfortable,' said Horace, clearing a place on the table to sit on. "'This is my home. I live here.' "'You camp here, I think. I never saw such a messy place in my life.' Huh grunted the doctor, filling a German pipe with strong tobacco. You shouldn't come here in a Bond Street kit. Well, what is it? Are you longing to be on the trail again? I am on a sort of trail, certainly, admitted Prelice slowly and inspecting the ash of his cigar. 
a man-hunt. Ah, your eyes light up at that, you bloodthirsty old pagan. A man-hunt, repeated Horace meditatively, and in London. Slow business. Well, I don't know, Horace. It is one requiring a great deal of subtlety. I have come for your assistance. Huh, said the doctor again, and nodded. I'm with you. Prelice reflected for a few moments before beginning an explanation of his errand. He did not know how much to tell and how much to withhold. Horace saw his hesitation and ascribed it to the right cause. I must know everything, Prelice, he said quickly, else I do not assist. I have no notion of working in the dark and failing through ignorance. You can read my thoughts as usual, I see, commented the visitor. Some more of that clairvoyant business, I expect. Well, I have a case to lay before you which will tax your occult powers to the utmost. Fire away, said Horace, and placing his hands on the table, rocked to and fro, looking absurdly like a monkey. The missing link, they called him in the wilds, and certainly the name was deserved. Horace was a small man with a long body, short legs, and lengthy arms very powerfully built and very shaggy in appearance. Prelice looked at the doctor's large head covered with tangled red hair, at his beard and mustache of the same hue, untrimmed and untidy, concealing nearly all his flat face, and at his big horn-rimmed spectacles, which hid the brightest and keenest of blue eyes. He wore an old pair of flannel trousers and a still older flannel shirt, the sleeves of which were turned up over two hairy wrists encircled with matatabelli wire bracelets. To complete his barbaric looks, his large ears, furry as those of a fawn, were adorned with gold rings. A more quaint or a more extraordinary figure was not to be met with, outside a freak museum, and Dr. Horace should have been exhibited in one, if only on account of the beautifully executed tattooing, which Prelice could see on his sunburnt arms and on his chest through the unbuttoned shirt. No one would have taken this man-monkey to be a clever and learned scholar with a heart of gold and a fund of knowledge second to none. Prelice knew and esteemed him, and had fought with him, for the doctor was obstinate and beside him in the naked lands at the back of beyond, when both held their lives in their hands. All the same, being fastidious, he sincerely wished that when the doctor returned to civilization, he would leave behind him in the wilderness his uncouth manners and shabby dress and general appearance of being a prehistoric man of Lady Sophia's favorite stone age. Go on, go on, said Horace impatiently. Don't keep me waiting. I have lots to do and can't waste time. You have lots to do in the way of dress, I think. Come and have a Turkish bath and visit the nearest barber. Then I can take you to my tailor to be clothed properly and... Horace interrupted, characteristically by throwing his pipe at the young man. It was deftly fielded and returned. Do you remember Easter Island? asked Prelice when the doctor was again smoking. Then in reply to a consenting grunt, I see you do. And the sacred herb, eh? 
Horace scowled. How do you come into the matter? He growled. Into what matter? queried the other. Oliver Lanwin's murder. It is in all the papers. Quite so, but why should my remark about the sacred herb make you think that I referred to Lanwin's murder? Is there any need of an explanation? asked Horace coolly. If you didn't guess, as I did, that the sacred herb was used to make that smoke, why do you talk of the matter at all? Then you think that the herb... Course, course, growled Horace, beginning to rock again. Lanwin haunted the South Seas. I knew him there. He must have got the herb from Easter Island, as it is the only place it grows in. When I read the girl's yarn of the smoke, I guessed straight off that Lanwin had been trying to induce a trance with the burning herb. Do you think that Miss Chent murdered him? No, the library was filled with the smoke of the herb. Anyone, not used to the fumes, would go down like a shot, as she did. Then you believe Miss Chent's story? asked Prelice eagerly. Horace nodded. She could not have made up such a clever yarn. Then why in heaven's name, questioned the young man, rising, did you not volunteer your evidence to save her? Will it save her? Assuredly. Everyone regards her story of being stupefied with the smoke as absurd. If you tell what we saw on Easter Island in front of the statues, tell it yourself. I intend to. I am going to the court now, and you, said Prelice with emphasis, you are coming with me. Horace knocked the ashes out of his pipe. Why should I? He demanded with a stolid air. That's a long story, retorted Prelice restlessly. I can give you ten minutes. Don't talk through your hat. Knowing his man, the visitor did not waste time, but bluntly detailed how he came to be drawn into the Lanwin murder case. But he naturally suppressed his feelings for the beautiful prisoner and put down his interest with some emphasis to pure friendship for Shepworth. On reaching the end of the hide portion of the story, he paused to draw breath. Is that all? asked Horace grimly. The first part only, replied Prelice promptly, and narrated the events of the previous night from the time he went to Mrs. Rover's ball mask to the time he left the Kensington police station to call upon his listener. During this latter part of the history, Dr. Horace became restless and wandered about his untidy room, stumbling over obstacles and softly swearing with a wonderful command of language. He appeared to be inattentive, but in reality had not lost a single word. When Prelice stopped, he came to a halt before the young man. "'I'll go with you to the court,' he declared." The first thing to do is to save the girl. After that, we can consider how to get Shepworth out of his difficulty. He is innocent, of course, observed Prelice, trying to read the rugged face of his new ally. Never said he wasn't, grumbled the doctor, then reflected for a few moments, raking his long beard with outspread fingers. See here, he burst out finally. Will you allow me to engineer this business? I shall only be too glad. Are you going to use occult methods? I don't need to. I have my own ideas. 
having read the newspapers. Then you think that Agstone murdered Lanwin? No more than I think Shepworth murdered Agstone. On your own, showing your barrister friend brought the knife to the flat, and it is on the false evidence of the knife which you and Shepworth supplied that Inspector Burge seems to judge Agstone. Still, oh, don't talk poppycock, interrupted the little man impatiently. You are not polite, Horace. Was I ever polite? demanded the other scornfully. No, to do you justice, you are always consistently rude. Then why expect the impossible, retorted Horace, and again stumbled about the crowded room, swearing softly. When again abreast of Prelus, who was sorely puzzled by this strange conduct, the doctor thrust out a large hairy paw. Shake, he said brusquely. Prelus did so promptly and inquired, Why? Because you are giving me pleasure in allowing me to help you. His friend looked at the odd creature perplexedly. I don't understand what you mean, he declared, frowning. Never mind, returned Horace with a chuckle. When it is necessary for you to understand, I'll straighten out things. Then you have a theory? I have more than that. I have certain knowledge. Of what, in heaven's name? Hi, cockalorum, snip-snap snorum, was the jocular and enigmatic reply. Come to my bedroom and we can chatter while I dress. Well, said Prelice, as he sauntered after his friend, I am glad that you are not going in that rig out. It isn't the 5th of November. Silly ass, snapped the traveler. Get a dressed-up doll to help you. All right, come to a toy shop and help me to choose one. Dr. Horace began to laugh. Why can't you talk sense? He growled. I shall do so if you will set the example. Very good. I have some of the sacred herb here. Shall I take it to the new bailey and give judge and jury and counsel a practical illustration of how Miss Chent and Shepworth went into trances? You can if you like. By the way, did you give any portion of that herb away, Horace? The doctor, who was plunging his hairy face in water, gurgled and grumbled, but made no reply. Prelice was nettled. Why can't you be plain with me, confound you? All right. Horace began to dry his face vigorously. I don't believe that Miss Chent is guilty, or that Shepworth killed Agstone. I knew that before, said Prelice dryly. You tell me nothing new. Oh, retorted Horace mockingly. You want to hear something new, like an Athean of St. Paul's period. Very good. Do you know why I take so deep an interest in this case? No, I don't. Unless it is to help me and Ned. I don't care a red cent about you and Ned, but I care a trifle about Agstone, poor devil. Prelice sat up straight and stared. In heaven's name, why? Because, said Dr. Horace slowly, and looking at Prelice's puzzled face in the glass, because Steve Agstone is my brother. End of chapter 9